Well, welcome back to our series called Big Hairy Audacious Questions. We've discussed some of the major issues that skeptics and seekers typically bring up, legitimate concerns, I admit, and I've attempted to uh, address those concerns very directly. We've talked about the reasons to believe the Bible is from God, the evidence for the crucifixion and the resurrection, and for the last two weeks we've discussed the fact that science and Christianity are not incompatible. I'm doing all this in the spirit of 1 Peter 3.15, which says, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. We need to be prepared to give an answer. And we need to actually give answers whenever we get the chance. Give answers to what? Well, we need to give answers to people's questions. And certainly one of the biggest questions people are asking today is this one. How can a loving God allow suffering? If God is good and loving, but also all-powerful, how can he not simply snap his fingers and eradicate suffering from the planet? How can a loving God allow so much suffering to continue? This question and the assumption that there is no good answer keeps many people away from church and away from God. However, I think it's interesting that most who hold the world's suffering against God are not speaking so much from their own personal experience. Think about this. As a general rule, the people who suffer the most move beyond this question. People who suffer the most often wind up closer to God than the rest of us. See, those who suffer most often find comfort and help from God in the midst of their suffering because their suffering winds up leading them closer to God, not further away. The quadriplegic Johnny Erickson Tata is a great example. Paralyzed in a diving accident at the young age of 18, Johnny can't move anything but her head. And yet she spent her life painting amazing pictures for the glory of God by holding her paintbrush between her teeth. Johnny Erickson Tata constantly testifies that her only hope is in Jesus Christ, her Savior. Despite what we all see as a tragedy that he could have stopped from happening. This is not to say that those who face their own suffering don't question God at times, but it is to observe that many who suffer tend to drop such questions as they turn to God for help. Johnny Erickson Tata admits that after her accident, she went into a deep depression, doubting God, even contemplating suicide. But before long, she became one of the strongest Christ followers you could ever want to know, inspiring multitudes to faith in Christ with her testimony, her wisdom, and her paintings. In fact, there are many others, famous examples I could mention, as well as ordinary people I've known who have suffered more than most and are somehow also closer to God than most. There are probably several folks within our midst 
this morning who have gone through more suffering than the rest of us want to contemplate. And yet you're here at church. Why? Because in Christ, there is hope beyond this life suffering. I'll mention just one example from our own church family. Tom Harper can't be here very often because of some pretty extreme health problems, which he has endured most of his life. Diagnosed with type 1 diabetes during a time when less could be done about it, Tom wasn't supposed to live so long. But now in his 60s, he continues to endure various surgeries and other challenges. The man is a walking testimony to the power of God to overcome physical pain and suffering. Pray for Tom as he recovers today from yet another surgery. And for Janelle, his wife, as she both takes care of him and helps provide for them by serving as a nurse in one of our hospitals. The way both of them face the likelihood that Tom won't live on this earth for many more years reminds me of the faith and eternal perspective of the apostles. Tom has spent decades in physical pain and suffering, yet his faith in God is both strong and inspiring. In my first church plant back in Missouri, we stood by and watched as one of our young people gradually <clears throat> lost his vision to a rare disease. It was a family. Thank you, Abby and Connor, for putting me in this emotional state. <clears throat> They've been one of our original families, and they were with us from the beginning. <clears throat> on, top of it, on top of it, I have like an eyelash in my left eye. It's <clears throat> first time for everything. All right. He lost his vision to a rare disease, tough to witness. And of course, we prayed hard that this young man would be healed, but it didn't happen. Even though our <clears throat> friend became blind before finishing high school, we also saw him turn to Christ more fervently than ever, eventually attending Bible college, and now he serves in gospel ministry, even as a blind man. This one who had perfect vision when I first met him, and who over a period of just a few years became legally blind, is now devoted to leading others to Jesus. See, it usually isn't the person who has suffered the most who continues to doubt the existence of a loving God, but rather some relatively sheltered person like me, or maybe you, who's looking at events in the world and saying, how could God have let this happen to that person or those people, sheltered individuals are generally the ones who persistently ask God why he lets other people suffer. For example, Charles Templeton had been a colleague and partner of Billy Graham early in life. They were both preachers at a young age. But at some point, their paths diverged completely. You probably know about the famous evangelist Billy Graham, but you may not know that Charles Templeton became an outspoken agnostic and actually wrote a book called Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. 
Lee Strobel as an author had gone the other way, converting from skepticism to faith in Christ. Once an agnostic, Strobel came to faith in Christ while intending to disprove the gospel. And inside his wonderful second book called The Case for Faith, Mr. Strobel interviewed Mr. Templeton in order to find out firsthand why he had decided to reject Christianity. <laughs> Mr. Strobel asked Mr. Templeton if there was anything specific that put him over the edge. Templeton said it was a photograph in Life magazine. He said it was a picture of a black woman in northern Africa. They were experiencing a devastating drought. She was holding her dead baby in her arms and looking up to heaven with the most forlorn expression. He said, I looked at it and I thought, is it possible to believe that there is a loving or caring creator when all this woman needed was rain? I suppose that's a fair question. But notice that it wasn't his own personal suffering that led Templeton away from God. It was someone else's suffering which led him, not to a personal understanding about suffering through experience, but to a philosophical conundrum formed from a distance and based on a very limited perspective. And the problem is that God does not fit into our little philosophical boxes. He is not bound by time or space, and He sees things differently from the other side of eternity. God is spiritual, not physical, and as such, He views the world through a different set of lenses than we do. But all Templeton had to go on was his own interpretation of a sad picture. And sad it is. I'm not saying that Charles Templeton's objection toward God is an easy problem to solve. It isn't. I want you to know that I personally struggle with this issue fairly often. If God is all-powerful and all-loving, how can there be such horrible, atrocious pain and suffering in the world? How can God stand by while this or that happens? Sometimes I cry out to God like David did so often in the Psalms, saying, Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And as he did for David, God holds on to my heart even in those angry or doubtful moments when in my ignorance I become disappointed with what seems like uncaring inaction on his part. When I see vivid images of starving children in Africa, when I hear about a sweet young married couple murdered by a gang of thugs near my hometown or a whole family, children and all, killed by a drunk driver, I question God. Like most of you, I'm absolutely shaken every time there is a mass murder and when earthquakes destroy or when terrorists are allowed to behead people who are my brothers and sisters in Christ. These things absolutely shake my faith, and sometimes I say it with everybody else, where was God? On the other hand, it doesn't actually make sense to let the pain and suffering on earth lead us to atheism. Our disdain for suffering is evidence for God, not against Him. Why should we expect these things not to happen if there is no God? Why should suffering seem wrong if there's no God and we're only further evolved animals living on a big ball of rock that somehow just burst into existence for no reason? Why should suffering seem out of place? Why should anyone have survived? Why should suffering seem so wrong? In reality, if you listen to most self-described atheists on this subject, they are not as unbelieving as they are angry and disappointed with whoever God is. We become angry and disappointed with God when we think we have the right to tell Him how He should be. This comes from the original sin. Having a limited knowledge of good and evil, we, we, we try to play like gods ourselves, and foolishly we make judgments about the real God. 
The fact is that God does not answer to us. We must deal with God as He is, not as we in our tiny little brains think He should be. As one of my favorite songs puts it, God is God and I'm not. I can only see a part of the picture He's painting. God is God and I'm man, so I'll never understand it all. For only God is God. And yet we do want to understand as much as we can. And that's okay, right? That's why we're here. So let's get into it. We're going to approach this topic by looking at the sources of suffering. One of the biggest problems I've noticed in the way we sometimes misunderstand suffering is that we're not very good at determining where it comes from. My goal is to give you some pigeonholes for the different types of suffering that may come into your, lo- your life as well as a way to categorize the suffering you see in the world. I believe a better understanding of the sources of suffering will positively impact your view of God. Let's look at several different sources of suffering. And I'll also mention briefly a related solution for each of these. Source number one, self. We are often the source of our own suffering. God sets rules to protect us from ourselves, not so He can punish us when we fail. God knows that disobeying His rules will lead to suffering in our lives, even as we also bring suffering to others by the same disobedience. We can just go right down through the Ten Commandments, and it's pretty obvious when you lie, you hurt people and you hurt yourself. Liars wind up disliked, alone, and unhappy. When you steal, you lose your self-worth. When you put other things before God, life becomes vain and empty, dark. When you engage in sex outside of marriage, you ruin everything. God's commands are for your own good and for the good of others around you. When you disobey God's command, the Bible calls that sin, and God says your selfish decisions to sin will bear fruits of suffering and eventually death. In one sense, God doesn't really need to punish us because when we rebel against Him, we punish ourselves. Galatians 6, 8 says, those who live to satisfy their own sinful desires will harvest the consequences of decay and death. As an example of this biblical principle, if you smoke, you're going to get lung cancer or COPD or something else bad, and eventually it will kill you. I don't know if you've heard about that before or knew that that was true. Hopefully I'm not the one breaking it to you, but you will reap a harvest of suffering from what you are sowing. I'm not looking down on you or judging you. I'm just telling you not to blame God when you have health problems from smoking. God isn't going to give you lung cancer just to get back at you. You're giving it to yourself. Smoking is just one example. Remember, the Bible says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and therefore to take extremely good care of it. Not to do so is to ignore what God has said. And this will cause suffering at some point in your life. I don't smoke, but I do eat too much pie. If I don't lose 10 pounds pretty soon, it very well might affect my physical health negatively down the road. So now I'm accountable to all of you, I guess. I hereby confess that I will be trying to do something about it again right after my birthday. (laughs) Seriously though, often our suffering is simply a case of reaping and sowing. Sinful choices bear rotten fruit and rotten fruit stinks. 
Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm only saying that some health problems and some suffering are the result of sinful choices, but certainly not all or probably most. Here's the key truth to remember. Not all suffering is brought on by sin, but all sin brings on suffering. Before we look to blame God or some other source, we should probably look first to self and see if any of the issue lies within. Before we blame God or anyone else, we need to remember the law of reaping and sowing. Again, the Bible says, do not be fooled. You cannot cheat God. People harvest only what they plant. If they plant to satisfy their sinful selves, their sinful selves will bring them ruin. Have you ever noticed that sin has a ripple effect? Do you think with our finite minds we can begin to comprehend how many ways our sin may have affected the world around us? I have no idea how much suffering I personally may have caused, not only for myself but also for others, because of my own sinful choices. I bet I wouldn't want to know. Not all suffering is brought on by sin, but all sin brings on suffering. Some people have AIDS because of sin. Other people have AIDS because of somebody else's sin. Now, where do I get those ideas and statements? Well, let's think about this. You tell me, if everyone had obeyed, if everyone had always obeyed God's word and nobody ever had sex even one time outside of marriage between one man and one woman, would there be any sexually transmitted diseases? The answer is a definitive no. There would be no STDs if everyone had always obeyed this one clear command of God. As I said, that doesn't mean that everyone who has AIDS today got it because of their own sin, obviously. That's my point. The cumulative effect of your sin and my sin and everyone in the world's sin creates an exponentially multiplying amount of global suffering that is there simply because of cause and effect, reaping and sowing, bad choices adding up to bad consequences for everybody. And so before we blame God for the suffering in the world, we should first ask, how much of this world's suffering do we cause ourselves? How much is caused by your sin? How much by mine? How much suffering is caused by everyone's sinful choices altogether all over the planet? Can you really imagine the cumulative effect of the sin of six or seven billion people? And as a side point here, let me say that sin is not only defined as doing things God said not to do, but sin is also failing to do the things God said that we should do. How much of the suffering in the world could be alleviated if those of us who claim to follow Christ followed him a little bit better? Why do we expect God to do that which he's called us to do ourselves? Wouldn't that make us obsolete? What good are we if we expect God to do supernaturally what we can do naturally? Why do we blame God for suffering that we have the power to end? Do we really want to make ourselves redundant? Do we really want God to do everything supernaturally until our lives serve no purpose? Do we really want to live in a world where our choices are meaningless and there are no consequences for our apathy? By the way, when you give financially to this church, it makes a significant difference in the effort to end suffering, such as world hunger, as well as many other things. A percentage of what you give here goes to help starving people. Percentage goes to help orphans and to fund missionaries all over the world and many other things. That's because we're part of something greater than just this one church. We are part of the Northwest Baptist Convention which is part of an even larger convention of churches. And through, that, through what we call the cooperative program, we do a ton of good in the world, a ton. Have the largest disaster relief in the world, second to the Red Cross. When you give here, you give to something much greater. But right now the point is that even though we're doing 
some as a church, if everyone with plenty really did their part, a ton of suffering on this planet could be alleviated. See, the real holdup to ending suffering, such as that caused by world hunger, is self. It's our problem because we could solve it, and yet we haven't. Don't blame God for suffering that we could end. Now that we understand that self is one of the causes of suffering, we can talk about the solution. So what is the solution to suffering caused by self? The solution is this, obedience. Sin causes suffering. Obedience alleviates it. Don't make choices that will bring suffering into your life and into the lives of those you care about. Meanwhile, look for ways to positively obey Christ by ending or helping with the suffering of others. If all who claim to follow Christ will only obey His commands, I wonder how much suffering on this planet can come to an end. But there's a second source of suffering on this earth. Besides ourselves, there are, of course, others. We are affected by the actions of others, and specifically I'm talking about others who act in horrible, evil ways. This is the bummer side of what we call free will. The current invasion of Ukraine comes to mind, certainly. And we need to keep praying for peace there. But in terms of something closer to home, the most poignant example of suffering caused by others in my lifetime must be September 11th, 2001. Others killed several thousand civilians by crashing commercial airliners into skyscrapers filled with people. A horrific act of terror against ordinary folks simply trying to live out their lives. And right now the point is that God did not stop it. Why didn't God stop this from happening why didn't God stop Adam and Eve from eating the forbidden fruit? The answer is the same. He wanted the people he created to have the freedom to choose. He wanted people to choose to obey him and to love him and to serve him and to worship him. For us to have those choices, there had to be the possibility of choosing not to obey, not to love, not to worship, and not to serve him. God did not create us to control us like puppets or to solve all our problems for us by controlling others like puppets. He has not promised to supernaturally protect us from all the evil actions of other humans who have the same freedom to choose that we have. God wants us to seek His help in times of trouble, but not to sit back and expect Him to automatically zap everything before it gets to us. Whether or not God chooses to do a miracle to protect us in any given situation is simply up to Him, but generally speaking, He allows for the free will of others. The Apostle Paul asked one of his churches, and pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith. But Paul was not always delivered, was he? No, he was beaten and left for dead, thrown into prison, whipped, tortured, ridiculed, abused. Church historians say Paul was eventually executed by the evil Roman government for his faith in Christ. Justice will come for all in the end, but in the present we must face the fact that for God to take away the potential of suffering at the hands of others, He would have to take away free agency from the human race. And that would go against part of the reason He made us in the first place. So what is the solution? When others are the source of our suffering, this may come as a surprise. The solution to suffering caused by others is forgiveness. Jesus said, for if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. The need to forgive will make it into many messages in the future, so I won't take time to unpack forgiveness today, but let me simply say this. When you don't forgive others who have caused you pain, you only continue to allow them 
to hurt you. Conversely, when you proactively forgive those who maybe don't deserve it, you are at your most Christ-like, and you are wielding the power you have from Him, power to end that particular cycle of suffering. Now, God also has an ultimate solution to this source of suffering. We'll talk about that later. But the most immediate solution to suffering caused by others, and the only solution that we can employ ourselves in this space, is actually forgiveness. Let's move on to the third source of suffering, which is Satan himself. Yes, Satan is a real, powerful, spiritual presence, and yes, he purposefully and actively causes suffering on this planet. I do get annoyed with Christians who try to look tough by talking like they have Satan by the nose. I don't believe arrogance should be our attitude towards Satan. It's true that believers don't need to live in mortal fear of him, but there's a big difference between not being afraid and being arrogant. Even one of the mightiest of God's angels was not haughty or proud before Satan. Jude says, but Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil, did not dare pronounce a railing against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. I do not believe that we have power to control Satan ourselves or even that we should somehow, can somehow bind him or make him do what we want by saying the right magic words. Make no mistake, Satan is real and he has great power, particularly in his influence. God's adversary is dangerous and he causes suffering in our lives in various ways. The apostle Peter wrote, be careful. Watch out for attacks from the devil, your great enemy. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for some victim to devour. We're told to be careful and to watch out. At the same time, those who have the Holy Spirit living inside of them, in other words, true Christians, those who have trusted in Christ, do not need to feel helpless in the face of the devil. Because as the Bible puts it in another, another place, God's Spirit who is in you is greater than the devil who is in the world. And so there's a balance. I don't walk around in fear of Satan, but I, don't, but I do realize that he has power, power beyond me, beyond my even understanding. Scripture calls him the prince of the power of the air. And it says he has the ability to influence people to do his will. And see, when he does, suffering follows. Satan is a powerful source of suffering in this world. As I read Scripture, I find that mostly he seems to work by using people. Happens all the time, even in the church. Watch out that he does not use you. Ephesians 2.2 2 says, You used to live like the rest of the world, full of sin, obeying Satan, the mighty prince of the power of the air. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Now, do you want to know what the number one way Satan works in this world is? This is the way we see him working throughout Scripture from the beginning of creation forward. Satan's number one tool for creating suffering in this world is a little something the Bible calls temptation. Paul wrote to one of his churches, I was afraid that the tempter had gotten the best of you and that all our work had been useless. I was afraid. I was afraid the tempter had gotten to you. This is written to a church, a group of believers who are clearly not impervious to the workings of the devil. The fact is that through temptation, Satan has brought untold amounts of suffering into this world. In fact, it was his temptation in the Garden of Eden that led to the initial moment of suffering on this planet. 
as Adam and Eve cowered in fear and shame before God, who had been their close companion the day before. And then God had to sacrifice to kill an animal to provide clothing to cover their newfound shame. Satan won a great battle that day. Paradise was lost. And the age of death and suffering had begun. What is the solution to the sufferings caused by the temptation of Satan? One word. Resist. The Bible says, so humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now that's a promise I can hang on to. I don't have a tattoo, but if I had one, just saying. That's a good one. I don't know where that came from today. It's not in my notes. Strike, strike that from the record. <laughs> Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It doesn't say go and taunt the devil in arrogance, but very simply to resist him. Resist Satan's schemes and his lies and his temptations. Reject his voice. Firmly refuse his plan, and he will quickly give up and run away. Flee. I've found this to be true in my life. I wonder if we did a better job of resisting Satan. How much suffering could be avoided in the world and in our churches? The fourth source of suffering as what is referred to as the cursed earth. I explained last week why it's so important theologically to believe what the Bible says about the cause of death and the beginning of suffering on this planet. To believe death, disease, decay, and suffering existed before mankind even hit the scene, that suffering and death can be seen in millions of fossilized dead things before Adam and Eve sinned is to do great damage to the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible says God created a paradise and that death, disease, decay, and suffering entered that paradise as a direct result of man's sin and disobedience. The whole world came crashing down when Adam and Eve sinned. The Bible says the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and care for it, but the Lord God gave him this warning. You may freely eat any fruit in the garden except fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of its fruit, you will surely die. And you know what happened? The serpent, who was the devil in disguise, tempted Eve with the fruit. She gave in and ate it. She gave it to Adam and he ate it. And they started running from God. Let's pick up the story where God told them what some of the consequences of their sin would be. Genesis 3, verse 16. Then God said to the woman, you will bear children with intense pain and suffering. And though your desire will be for your husband, he will be your master. And to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit I told you not to eat, I have placed a curse on the ground. All your life, you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. All your life, you will sweat to produce food until your dying day. Then you will return to the ground from which you came, for you were made from dust, and to the dust you will return. Everything alive started dying. And the earth itself was cursed because of sin. That was on the beginning of a chain reaction that led to what we have to deal with today. Newton's second law of thermodynamics observes this fact. This is the law of entropy. And it states that in a closed system, all things tend toward disorder. The earth and everything in it is winding down. There's a theological reason for the law of entropy. The earth has been cursed by sin. Everything in this creation is deteriorating. The earth groans 
Rifts have opened up below the oceans and continue to spread apart, causing earthquakes and tsunamis. The sun is dying. Scientists know that the earth will eventually spend itself and fall apart. The Bible agrees, telling us that natural disasters will only get worse until the end. All the problems with our planet started when sin entered this world. Prior to that, the earth was a paradise, free from death and suffering. But the Bible says this in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 20, against its will, everything on earth was subjected to God's curse. All creation anticipates the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And even we Christians, although we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, also groan to be released from pain and suffering. We too wait anxiously for the day when God will give us our full rights as his children, including the new bodies he has promised us. This is a fallen world. It is a sin-filled place. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is, anyone? Death. So the earth is dying. And we'll continue to die until the end. That's why we have tornadoes and volcanoes and tsunamis and all the rest. The earth is in a state of decay. And God told us it would be this way from the time sin entered the earth. These are the consequences of sin and the curse. What's the solution? The solution is found in the biblical promises about the return of Jesus Christ. The Bible says when he comes back, Jesus will make, and here it is, solution number four, all things new. Can I have an amen? Amen. All things new. God's solution to this cursed earth is on the way. And it may seem like he's waiting a long time to us, but to God, a day is like a thousand years. We just read from Romans 8, all creation anticipates the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. And then we too wait anxiously for that day when God will give us our full rights as his children, including the new bodies he's promised us. Acts 3.21 says he, Jesus, must remain in heaven until the time comes for what? All things to be made new, as God announced through his holy prophets of long ago. And when God says all things, that's exactly what he means. The Bible says there will be a new heaven and a new earth with no more suffering and no more pain. Revelation 22, 3 specifically says that when Jesus comes back, there will no longer be any curse. That's the promise. No more cursed earth, no more volcanoes, no more earthquakes. And if I can take a little liberty, no more weeds. (laughs) Especially horsetails. Anyone? Anyone? I hate those things. If you garden, you know what I'm talking, you're with me on this. Those things are part of the curse. There's just no doubt in my mind. (laughs) At that time, whether we're still alive or had previously died, we will receive new resurrected bodies, fit for eternity and free from the curse of sin. The one who created the human form in the first place will recreate it in immortality. By the way, this goes back to what we've been talking about. If you think God just got everything macroevolution, kind of, you know, amoeba to man evolution stuff, is that the way he's going to do it the second time? Millions of years? Is my resurrection going to take millions of years? Or is he going to recreate me out of nothing like he did the first time? I'm thinking that. I don't know if that made sense, but you can rewind to last week and maybe, maybe it will. Everything will be remade to last forever. 
The Bible makes amazing promises about the end of suffering on this planet, which coincides with the return of Jesus Christ and the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. We can trust that the same book that got all the prophecies right about Jesus the first time will get them all right the second time. Now, I've talked about the major sources of suffering and some of the potential solutions, but I still haven't completely answered the question. How can a loving God allow suffering? What I basically said is that there are many things God allows that He does not personally cause. That is a very important distinction because it affects our understanding of the character of God and why the world is the way it is. God is not the source of any of the types of suffering we have discussed. And yet God does allow these types of suffering. Let me answer the question more directly. God allows suffering caused by ourselves and others because not to do so would require violating our free will and forcing us to behave like robots. What about the other two kinds of suffering? God allows suffering caused by Satan and the cursed earth because his wrath is not yet full. And he is waiting for more people to repent before he destroys this earth and Satan in order to start over with a new paradise. In a certain kind of way, you should be careful what you wish for. As Scripture says, for the new to come, the old must be done away. Apparently, God is not quite ready to purge the earth with fire. We have a little more time to preach the gospel and rescue the perishing. And so, at least in that way, we should be thankful that God hasn't brought paradise to earth quite yet. But the truth is that no matter what else I say, there is still a part of every human heart that will cry out when we see extreme suffering. How can God allow it? And the reason we can't get around this or suddenly be okay with it is that suffering is not right. It's wrong. Suffering's out of place, like a splinter in our souls, one that we cannot remove. You and I have an innate sense that suffering should not be here. But where does that strong conviction come from? Why would we feel that suffering is wrong and out of place, that it shouldn't exist? Our hearts cry out for paradise and immortality. Why? Because that was the original design. It's what we were made for. We long to return to the perfection from which we came. And the awesome thing is that God has made a way for that to happen by sending His Son. Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. By the way, who has overcome the world? Has anyone else overcome the world? Only Jesus has overcome the world. We've not been promised a life free from suffering in the here and now. But the good news is that God has a plan to end all suffering, and the only real issue is trusting Him with His timing. Maybe we could just at least do that. He does everything else. We just need to trust Him with His timing. Once more, let me remind you that the Bible says God is going to recreate this place as a paradise without suffering when Jesus returns. But part of that process, get this, will be removing the sources of suffering which means the destruction of the first creation, including those who have rejected his ultimate solution. What's the ultimate solution? We'll call it salvation. 
John 3.16 says it so simply and so beautifully. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the suffering that we inflict upon ourselves. Saved from the suffering inflicted on us by evil people. Saved from suffering handed out by Satan. Saved from the suffering of this cursed earth. And saved from the eternal suffering that is the destiny of those who reject or ignore God's forgiveness in Christ. Salvation means we have the Spirit of God to help us endure suffering in the here and now. But even better, salvation frees us from suffering completely in the hereafter. Whoever believes... That's the key. That's the real key. Whoever believes. That word believes means so much more than just affirming something is true in your head. This means you make a personal decision to trust in Christ for salvation. It means you've had a moment with God when by His grace and through your faith, you've been born again as a new person in Christ. Have you actually had that moment? Have you been playing around on the edges, or have you truly surrendered to Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life? God offers a solution to suffering in Christ. We'll call that solution salvation. He's offering it, but you must receive it. Don't miss out on God's ultimate solution for suffering. You can ask Jesus to be your Savior and to save you right now. As I close, let me explain that this really does come down to a decision that you must make. There's always a choice. The case could be made that the single greatest moment of suffering that ever happened on this planet was the global flood during the time of Noah. Civilization had deteriorated until the level of evil on this earth was beyond what God could bear. He said, I'm starting over. Other than marine life, every single life that was not on Noah's ark drowned. Everything died. Yes, the God who created all from nothing also had the right to put an end to it, and he did so because people rebelled against him. And yet God provided a way, a way of salvation for anyone who would receive it. He provided a solution for the suffering that was going on, and a solution for the suffering which was about to come. He provided an ark, a giant boat, and he gave people time to repent and get on board. But outside of Noah's family, they all rejected God's simple plan of salvation. Maybe they thought it was too easy. I don't know. Only those who believe God and got on board with his plan of salvation, we're saved. Now, Jesus made the same parallel I'm making when he was talking to his disciples about his second coming. He said, in those days before the flood, the people enjoyed banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat, and the flood came to destroy them all. Jesus is the ark for us today. The boat, the boat is built. The door is still open. The fact is that most people around here are refusing to get on board. What about you? Will you get on board with Jesus? Or will you wait and see if it really starts raining?
Read the story. Once it starts raining, it's too late. Salvation by faith in Christ is the ultimate solution to the problem of suffering because when you accept God's solution, He ultimately solves your problem and He helps you endure to the end. And if that is not enough, the person who has truly been saved knows that no matter what happens here in this life, he or she can look forward to a suffering-free eternity with God. You know, I mentioned John 3, 16. You know what leads up to that famous verse? He goes back to Numbers and talks about this time when the people were all dying and God made a way for them to be saved. He said, if you'll just look up at this metal snake, metal snake, what's that about? Well, we could go deeper, but really still, metal snake. Look at a metal snake and you'll be saved. The point is, what has God said? What is the way of salvation that He has told us in His Word is what we must do? It's that we put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. We have to look up to Him. <laughs> you would think that if God had said it, it would end debate. Do you believe what God has said and will you do what he said to do? Which is to put your faith and your trust in Jesus. Let me pray with you. Lord, your word says in one place that it takes kind of a childlike faith. Thankfully, I was a child. Being the kind of skeptical seeker, uh, uh, skeptical thinker that I am, I, I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't accepted you. And now I know how true it is by the presence of your Holy Spirit. But God, you never give up on us. And there may be an adult here today who has all the questions in the world and who could read books on either side that make the case for and against God and for and against the Bible and for and against the gospel. But Lord, I believe your Holy Spirit has power to convict and power to move us. And I know testimonies of people who were making the case, just spent all their time online trying to convince others how untrue it all is, who somehow you still got through and were later saved and turned away from all of that. Maybe there's someone here today that's in that type of situation. I've seen it. I've seen it in real people's lives that I've known. That your Holy Spirit is powerful enough to cut through the crud of our own selfish thinking we're so smart, figured things out, that maybe somebody today is ready to have childlike faith and just throw it all in on Jesus. I hope so. And I hope that moment happens right now. God, suffering's hard to watch. I know it's hard for you to watch. It breaks your heart. Sometimes we say, why are you delaying? You answered that question. You said you're waiting for more people to repent. Maybe somebody today is one of the reasons you've been waiting. Thank you for saving me when I was six years old. 
with my limited understanding and then growing me through these years to help me understand more and helping me know what you want to do with me in my life. Thank you for all the other people in this church who are living out your mission for their life and your calling on their life and for the difference they're making. And I pray that today maybe another would be added to that number. Maybe more than one. And I pray that person would let us know so we can celebrate with them and talk about next steps. We surrender to you and your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.